Good morning, beloved. If you're visiting with us this morning, I am Pastor T. I'm one of the four pastors here at Anacostia River Church. And on behalf of the church family, we're glad that you're with us this morning. You have joined us in the middle of a series through the book of Leviticus, a series that we have called Holy Unto the Lord. Because the main theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. God tells Israel over and over again that he is holy. And so as his people, they are to be holy as well. We've come to Leviticus chapter 17, which is really sort of right in the middle of the book. You could divide the book in half based on this chapter. The first 16 chapters or so are sort of addressing Israel's worship how they are to be holy in their approach to God and in the worship of God. And from chapter 17 to the end of the book, it's going to be addressing Israel's lifestyle. So worship isn't just something they did when they came to the tent of meeting, but worship and holiness had practical implications for how they treated their neighbors, how they lived with others, how they regarded one another. So we're going to be in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17. If you need a Bible this morning, uh, raise your hands and one of the ushers will bring you one. So brother, right down front here, Asia, there. And Dylan, what page is Leviticus 17 on in that Bible? 896? 96. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Leviticus chapter 17 on page 96. Everybody with me? Someone has said that blood is the scarlet thread that runs throughout the Bible. If that's true of the whole Bible, then it is definitely true of Leviticus chapter 17. There's a thread running through it. Now, at first glance, Leviticus 17 uh, might seem like an odd collection of commands. I mean, we begin in verses 1 and 9 with God's concern that worship happen at the tent of meeting. But then in verses 10 to 17 or 16, the, the sort of focus switches a little bit and we start talking about things like eating blood in verses 10 to 12, uh, hunting and covering blood in verses 13 and 14, and in verses 15 to 16, eating roadkill, right? So it could, at a superficial level, look sort of like an odd smattering of teaching being put together in this chapter. But on closer inspection, as we we're saying, there is a scarlet thread that's running through that chapter. And that scarlet thread and what the blood signifies, life, and what the blood and the life accomplish, atonement. Those things are joined together here. And if we're thinking about Leviticus chapter 17, I think we might, we might say that the main point of the chapter is this, that God's people must respect the sanctity of life. We must respect the sanctity, the holiness, the dignity of life. And we must do that in this chapter in four areas. In worship, verses 1 to 9. When eating, verses 10 to 12. While hunting, verses 13 and 14. And if scavenging, verses 15 
and 16. So as we look at the text this morning, I pray the Lord would press upon us something more of the dignity, the holiness, the sanctity of all life. Look there in verses 1 to 9. It's teaching us about the sanctity of life in the middle or the midst of Israel's worship. Verses 1 and 2, God speaks to Moses. Almost every chapter of Leviticus begins with God speaking to Moses and, the Mo and Moses, the prophet now, as a mediator, speaking to Aaron, telling Aaron, the high priest, to instruct Israel in some aspect of worship. Now, apparently, Israel was sacrificing animals outside the camp as well as inside the camp. You see that in verse 3? They were taking these animals, the, the, the ox and the lamb and the goat. These are all domestic animals. These are all animals raised basically in a farm or on a ranch. They were taking these animals and, and kind of tipping their way to some spot outside the camp, inside the camp, to sacrifice these animals. They were going everywhere, it seems, except, verse 4, to the tent of meeting where God had instructed them to make the sacrifices. So what we have here in the opening chapter here is a very early indication of the idolatry of Israel. Instead of fellowshipping with God at the tent of meeting, notice they fellowshiped with demons. They took the holy things into common and unclean places. So they were profaning the holy things. They were profaning the blood of the sacrifice. It should have been sprinkled on the altar, but instead they're taking it out someplace else. And it's verse 7 that says they were sacrificing the goat demons. And we don't know what these goat demons were. Um, we, we, we don't know precisely what, what led Israel to this, but we do know that Israel has just been led out of the pagan land of Egypt. And here's the thing, beloved, sometimes you can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. Sometimes we can escape a circumstance that tempts us to sin or leads us to sin or tempts us away from God. to get rid of that temptation, to get rid of that spiritual corruption. And that, that appears to be the case with Israel here. They are sacrificing, they think, to some god, but it is not a god. It is an idol. And what the Bible teaches us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that behind every idol is not a god, but a demon. So Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17. There the Bible says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. They were making up gods to worship that were not gods but demons. And that's the thing about idolatry. Demonic presence and power hides behind the idol. Paul explains it in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 18 and 20. Verse 18, he refers to the fact that as Christians at the Lord's Supper, we are participating with Christ. We have a, a share of fellowship, a communion with Christ. And then he says, now, 
by comparison, when we are worshiping something else, we are fellowshipping or communing with something else. And then he says, now he has to clarify in verse 19, he says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. Maybe the most fundamental aspect of spiritual warfare is making sure that we worship the God who is really God and not the substitutes that we make up. Maybe 99% of winning spiritual warfare is actually coming to God rather than to God's substitutes. And that's what Israel was doing. They were going to God's substitutes in Leviticus chapter 17, and they were misusing now the blood of animals in their idolatry. And that misuse of the blood of animals was bringing severe judgment on them. We see it in two ways back in Leviticus chapter 17. First of all, God says in his word that blood guilt shall be imputed to them. You see that in verse 4? That blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. In other words, the person responsible for the misuse of blood, for their idolatry, would be held accountable for killing that animal. He would be charged with guilt for, for killing the animal and using the animal's blood in an idolatrous way. It would be viewed as unrighteous killing, as sinful killing of God's creature. And secondly, notice there that the person, verse 4, was to be cut off from among his people. In other words, the idolater was to be removed from membership in Israel. And that language of cut off suggests that for certain sins, there's a capital offense, a judgment. They were to be put to death. So rather than leave that person in the midst of God's holy people, corrupting God's holy people with idolatrous worship, God says, no, 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 no. I care more about the purity of my people than I do the longevity of their lives. It's better for my nation that I remove the yeast, that I remove the leaven, that I remove the sinful presence so that my people would be pure. So he cuts them off. This language of cut off is the Old Testament language for church discipline, for removing the unrepentant sinful person from among God's holy people. And so that's the context. That's what Israel was doing. They were worshiping the way they wanted to worship. They were being creative in their worship, but disobedient to God. And here's the thing, beloved. In the Bible, God says, I'm the one who is creative in determining how I should be worshipped. I bring the creativity, you bring the obedience. That's the way that works. And that's what was going on. Now notice what God does in his address of Israel. God commanded that the ancient Israelites bring their sacrifices to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Bring the sacrifices to where they were supposed to be brought. They were to offer their animals. At the altar in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, verse 3. 
No other place was acceptable. And then look at verses 8 and 9 where he gives the command again. You shall say to them, anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among you. So this is the law that's going to apply to everybody in the land. God's covenant people and the people passing through too. The native and the foreigner, the citizen and the immigrant. Say to them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it into the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. The text tells us that God commands that the offering be brought to the tent of meeting for three reasons. We see that in verses 5, 6, and 7. Number one, to to ensure that the people fellowship with God. That's what God wanted from them. Their fellowship. So verse 5 says, This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them, notice, as sacrifices of peace offerings of the Lord. Now you may remember that when we were in Leviticus chapter 3 or so and we looked at the peace offerings, The peace offerings were those offerings that represented uh, at the cookout the kind of fellowship that God's people was meant to have with him, right? God's saying here, I want them to bring their offerings to the tent of the meeting so we can hang out, so we can chill, so we can relate to one another. And he gives a second reason there in verse 6. They're to bring their offerings and to offer their offerings the way God instructed in order to please the Lord with their atonement. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The Lord loves the fat. All the fat belongs to the Lord. It's pleasing to the Lord. You got a wife like mine. She hears things that she thinks are clever. She always makes a T-shirt out of it, right? I got the wife and the T-shirt, Peter. And, and so the fat pleases the Lord. The sacrifice pleases the Lord. But now he gave them that blood precisely for that, that act of making atonement there at the tabernacle. Number three. He, he, he calls them to come to the tabernacle, number three, in order to prevent future idolatry. You see that there in verse seven? So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they prostitute themselves, after whom they whore. We, we might summarize it this way, that the blood of the sacrifices must be used to bring God's people to God's place in God's presence for God's pleasure. It's to be used to bring God's people to God's place, the tent of meeting, in God's presence, where they have the fellowship meal and offering in we apply this first section of Leviticus 17 this way. It's entirely possible to recover from idolatry. It's entirely possible 
to have spent part of our lives worshiping something as God that is not God. I spent several years of my life as a practicing Muslim, believing that Allah was God and was the only God, and denying the one true God of the Bible. I was sincere, and I was zealous, but I was wrong. But God didn't leave, leave me in my unbelief. He didn't leave me in my unbelief. He rescued me from the blindness of idolatry. And listen, that kind of idolatry is not the only kind of idolatry there is. So there's a formal religious idolatry that we need to be delivered from, but there's also a functional idolatry that many of us need to be delivered from. Money may function like a god in your life. Sex may function like a god in your life. Power or influence or popularity may function like a god in your life. You know what? Your joy can function like a god in your life. That you worship your own happiness and you're angry when you don't get it. And you want to make everybody else live in such a way as to make you happy. I don't know, but you might just be making joy an idol. Happiness and idol. And here's what I want to tell you about this God, this God right here in the Old Testament who's given these commands, who's threatening to cut people off, who so often is mischaracterized as an angry old God waiting to strike people down. Notice, he says, come back to me. He's gracious. He's good. He delivers from idolatry. He delivers you and I from the slavery of wrong belief so that we might put our faith in him, the one true God, and find the freedom that he has designed us for. That's what God is like. And that's why he spends the bulk of this chapter, almost half of this chapter, addressing them about their idolatry because he wants his people in his place, in his presence, not only for his pleasure, but their pleasure too. And maybe that's you this morning. You need to find your way to God's place and God's presence and experience God's pleasure. That's you, keep. And the place of bringing blood to the altar rather than in the field, we move from worship to eating, verses 10 to 12. Verse 10 to 12 is really another way in which Israel was forgetting the sanctity of life, the, the, the holiness of life. And they were forgetting it by eating blood. That, that grosses us out, right? Most of us anyway. Some of y'all like your steak raw. <laughs> but they could eat blood basically by eating meat that had not, um, the sort of blood had not been fully drained out of the meat yet. Or it could have been the case, since we've been addressing idolatry in verses 1 to 9, it could have been the case that they were practicing some kind of pagan ritual that involved the ingestion of, of blood. But either way, God right here in this text was being clear that eating blood was a violation of life. He would forbid eating blood under any circumstance. 
Now, once again, verse 10 mentions that there are two punishments that God warns uh, Israel with, just as he had, uh, sort of warned of two punishments in verses 1 and 9. First of all, uh, for eating blood, God warned that he would set his face against that person who eats blood. That an omnipotent and holy God would look to that person not with grace on his face, but with wrath on his face. We talk about somebody mean mugging or ice grilling or trying to look all hard. We haven't seen hard until we've seen God set his face against us, oppose us in righteous judgment. It's a serious judgment because it indicated God's divine disapproval. But not only that, now second, again, notice that this person, as in the case of verses 1 to 9, was to be cut off from his people. God is serious about this issue of not eating blood. And the reason was, by eating blood, they were profaning the blood. They were profaning the blood as a material that God had appointed for sacrifice. They were taking something that was holy, and they were making it common or unclean. And they were taking something with powerful, symbolic, and actual meaning. And they were abusing it and trampling it underfoot. A, a similar idea. The writer of Hebrews is talking to Christians who are... Um, in danger of turning away from the gospel and turning away from Jesus and turning back to these Old Testament forms of worship. And he's been warning them against this. And he writes there, he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So the writer of Hebrews is envisioning people who turn away from Jesus after having started in faith. He's envisioning them a little bit like the people in Leviticus chapter 17 who are eating blood and profaning blood, as he puts it, trampling blood. And in this case, in the New Testament, trampling the Son of God under their foot and profaning, making unholy, making unclean, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the Son of God the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is how serious that was. Verse 11 gives us the explanation, gives us, helps us to understand why this was so serious. Uh, God says there in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, here's why I would judge these folks. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Now, here's a piece of biblical logic and gospel logic that we have to hold fast to if we're going to understand life and salvation and the holiness of life the way, the, the way God wants us to. Break this sentence up into three parts. Number one, the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
Now, we all know that. That is physically and naturally true, right? If you lose blood from your body, any living creature with blood loses blood from their body, they what? They die. So blood is connected both naturally and, in this case, spiritually to life. One of my favorite um, animated movies is that little movie that was out some years ago called Bolt. You might remember that? who had been raised all his life on a movie set, thought he was a superhero, he's entirely not like our dog. Bolt is cool. And so he gets, he gets off the set, but he doesn't know it. He still thinks he's a superhero. And he gets with this sort of smart alley cat, this sort of street cat, and the cat's trying to hip him to the outside world. The cat trying to figure him out. It's like, this dude is different. He think he can shoot laser beams out of his eyes and all that. There's this wonderful scene where Bolt... Uh, gets like a thorn in his paw and he starts bleeding and he's like what's this red stuff and the cat's like it's your blood he's like do I need it she's like yeah keep it in your body even in the cartoons blood is connected to life right that's the first reason that that God says look we, we're going to we're going to take the blood of animals now regard we, we're talking about animals the blood of animals, seriously. But here's the second reason. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. God says, listen, I have a specific spiritual purpose in mind for the existence of blood itself and for the blood of the animals that are in your care. I have appointed blood for you. I have given it to you in order to make atonement for your sins. This is the way the sinner is going to be brought back from their sin to a holy God. They're going to be made at one again with God. There's going to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And you remember what the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's a, that's a principle all the way back here in the Old Testament, right here in this verse. God is saying, not only is life in the blood, but I've given the blood you might also have atonement, that you might have forgiveness. And then he ties it together the other way around in the last part of the verse, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. What does that mean? Well, the sinner who sins, according to Genesis chapter 3, should die for their sin. The punishment of God against sin is death. The only way to escape that punishment is that another life be given in your place. So there is a life for a life. There is a substitute that stands in the place of the sinner to give their life, to shed their blood, so that the sinner might have atonement with God. You see why I say this is, this is just gospel stuff right here? Because what happens in the gospel? It's not the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats, is it? It's the shedding of the blood of the Son of God who has life in himself and who gives life to those who believe in him. Right? He is the sacrifice that God has given us for the actual atonement. Not the symbolic atonement of the Old Testament, but the actual atonement, the actual forgiveness of our sins through the blood of the Son of God. And because he laid down his life, 
we pick up our life. Because he sacrificed himself, we have been forgiven and cleansed before a holy God. So in the Old Testament, God is saying, I've given you a symbol, I've given you a picture, I've given you a parable in the form of blood, and I'm going to keep that picture clear because in the generations to come, they need to see how it's fulfilled in my son. You ain't just going to be handling blood any kind of way because life is in the blood and it's for atonement. Notice the blood that makes atonement by the life. This principle is all over the Bible. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, it's after the flood. Noah and his sons and their wives are coming out of the ark and coming back out into the world. God has given them instruction in verses 1 and 2. He says, be fruitful and multiply. In verse 3, he says, um, yeah, you can, you can eat pretty much anything you want. Uh, he says, you can eat the, the living creature. You can eat some meat and you can eat some green vegetables. Okay, so eat it all. But then he says in verses 4 to 6, notice now, we're talking about the sanctity of life and blood. Verse 4, Genesis 9 but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. That deserves a month of sermons by itself. But let me make a couple of points here regarding the sanctity of life. Genesis chapter 9 reveals that God hates killing. It does, and that makes sense because God is the author and giver of life. Whether it's animal life or human life in Genesis 9 and throughout the Bible, God hates the unrighteous shedding of blood. He hates the careless disregard of life. So eating the blood of... In Genesis 9, spilling the blood of man in this regard. They both receive God's reckoning or judgment. But there's something else here. This lifeblood also must be respected because it's what's used, as we said before, on the altar of, aton of atonement. The penalty for sin is death. For sin to be atoned for, there must be either the death of the sinner or the death of the substitute, as we said. So blood is shed to give a life for life to make atonement. And so we are not to be careless with animals but rather to protect them. Now, this, this seems a little weird, I think, in a lot of Western societies, a lot of industrialized societies, to the point where I think sometimes Western-influenced folks mock folks who come from more um, natural um, kinds of societies. So let me just give you another illustration from pop culture. Some of you are old enough to remember when the first Avatar came out, the first movie Avatar came out. And there was great discussion about should Christians go see it because of the worldview behind it. It's, it's kind of, uh, um, oh God, syncretic and, and, and poly this and poly that and, and so on and so forth. 
But when you go watch the movie, and you make up your own mind about whether or not you want to watch it. It's a matter of Christian liberty. I've watched it several times. But you, you, you do you, okay? But when you watch the movie, one of the first things that you see happening is the Navi people, the big blue people. You know, the, 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 the Westerners come onto the planet, you know, in these, in these fake bodies, you know, crushing the grass and killing animals. And the Navi people are disgusted. Because they're like, you don't understand your connection to creation. You don't understand the value of life. You don't understand the value of this animal you just killed. You know, she, she gets with Jake Sully and they, she has to kill an animal to protect Jake Sully, but she goes over to the animal and says a, a prayer and you know, calms the animal, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I ain't, you ain't got to be going outside doing that to animals. Just sort of saying here, I think culturally, we might be predisposed to sinning against God by disregarding animals, not stewarding the creation as we are, and even thinking that that's a small thing compared to industry and enterprise and business. Well, the first business God gave man was to steward his creation. So we need to be a people who take life seriously, animal life, plant life, definitely human life. We shouldn't eat the blood. You do realize, let me make one other point, I'm going to move on because I, I feel like I'm, I'm all over the place. If I'm all over the place, y'all say keep moving past. If, it, if I'm making sense, say amen, okay. But, but one, more, one more point on this eating the blood bit. Go, oh, but we're in the New Testament. Guess what we find in the New Testament on this point? Acts chapter 15, in the Jerusalem council, when Gentiles were being saved and Jews didn't know what to do about it, they called a whole meeting about the Gentile problem. And they were like, okay, we can't lay on them any other burden than, than we have, right? God has been pleased to save them through the gospel, just as he saves Jews through the gospel. And so they write a letter near the end of, of Acts chapter 15, somewhere around verses 22, 24, 25 in there. You can look it up. And in that letter, guess what they say? They say, hey, we laid no other burden on you. But they said, keep yourself from idolatry. And guess what did they say? And from blood. And from blood. I'm trying to help y'all stop eating them raw steaks. <laughs> Amen. Moving right along. Moving right along. Maybe I'm trying to help us get the bigger principle of protecting life and stewarding life. Let me move us to the next next section here. Verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 and 14 give us a third way in which blood is used to teach the sanctity of life. Again, verses 1 to 9 focused on the tabernacle. Verses 10 to 12 focused on the table where you, where you eat. Now, verses 13 and 14 take us out into the hunting field. Like the other commands, the verses apply to both the Israelite and the sojourner and the pilgrim that's living among them. Verse 13 commands that when hunting, the Israelite who kills an animal, notice, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. Why? Well, dressing the animal in the field and covering his blood would have, number one, been a matter of good hygiene in ancient Israel. 
It would have, number two, helped to prevent other people from becoming unclean by coming into contact with the carcass and the blood. But it would have, number three, more importantly, more to the point according to verse 11, it would have demonstrated respect for that life. Notice what's said in verse 11. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. So covering the blood with earth, with dirt, suggests respect for that animal's life. That animal died so a human could eat. There should be some thanksgiving and some honoring of that animal. And stating the principle two times, as, as God does in verse 11, just adds emphasis to the, to the principle. Life cannot be treated in a casual or reckless way. Life must be honored even in death. The burial of this animal's blood gives dignity to the animal's life. If they don't do that, notice the consequence again. Once again, God commands that the person who breaks this commandment be cut off from the people of Israel. A life-giving God demands life-affirming followers. It's what he would have of us. And the application should be pretty, pretty clear, shouldn't it? As we're thinking about blood and the sanctity of life. As people who follow God, whether we're talking about the Old Testament people of Israel and certainly the New Testament people of the church, we, we must oppose the culture of death that we live in. We must oppose it. Beloved, we, we have to find a way to have a faithful presence right here in our neighborhood to stem the tide of gun death in our community. The gun violence in our community is not normal. It's not okay. Our coping with it shouldn't be the kind of coping that baptizes it as normal. Our coping with it should be the kind of coping that draws upon the spiritual resources of God to oppose it. I mean, one of the things that the job fair is doing, it, it's, it's way upstream, the connection, but one of the things that a, something like a job fair does when it, when it succeeds in getting someone uh, a livable wage and meaningful work, takes them out of the orbit of the streets and crime and violence. There are many ways to oppose gun violence. I, I was there at the job fair, and there was a young woman there that liked the T-shirt I had on. Where'd you get the T-shirt? I'm telling her the T-shirt had orange lettering and white, and she was like, I'm a part of an anti-gun anti violence movement here, and our color is orange, right? There she is at the job fair, trying to get a job, thinking also about gun violence and the elimination of gun violence. That should be all of us. That should be all of us. So we've got to pray, and we've got to be present, and we've got to speak up, and we've got to support anti-gun violence marches in our community. We've got to mentor young men, teenage boys, who are often the ones who are doing the most of this. 
We got to find jobs and opportunities for them. Why? Because we got to be a people as God's people who oppose the culture of death. God's a life-giving God. We've got to be people who, who, who really do work for the elimination of abortion. So praise God for the change in law at the highest level, but it's still having to be worked out at the local levels, at the state levels. And, and we got to be people who not only oppose uh, death, oppose something like legalized abortion, but we also have to be a people who affirm life, which means we got to be there for folks who are choosing life. we got to help folks escape the difficult situation that makes that unthinkable decision even plausible. It's, it's one thing and a good thing to sort of be there at the time where people are making that decision and try to persuade them toward life. It's another thing and an even better thing to say, we're going to walk with you for the next 18 years because that's how long it's going to take you to raise this child. Hey, I brought my amen with me. So I think this text is calling Israel and by implication calling us to be agents of life. It's reflecting that in the worship. It's reflecting that at the dinner table. It's reflecting that in the hunting field. That everywhere we go, we, we are meant to be people who, who carry the aroma of life, who protect it, who guard it. And this is why in the midst of a, a troubled society over things like police brutality, we've got to be people who, who affirm the dignity of a life of persons who may have been mistreated by police, and we've got to affirm the dignity and the rightness of policing. Because when they do their jobs right, they're protecting lives. We have to affirm the reform of policing so they do their jobs right, and they do only their job. They don't have to be the All the other things, we got to affirm accountability so they're not taking life wrongly, but we got to affirm this thing called policing because that's how our society structures itself to protect life. And some of us, praise God, have chosen that as a calling. Maybe more of us should consider it. And if not policing, military service, or other forms of civil service where we might be called upon to be agents of life where God sends us. So how does this play out in your life? How does this play out in your worship? How does this play out at your table? How does this play out when you are out in the field trying to get food for the family or, or whatever the case may be? How are we to be people who oppose a culture of death and affirm a culture of life? I think we're going to find that if we're faithful, this becomes pretty complex and pretty nuanced. So let me encourage you, as you think about this, turn off the TV and the sound bites. Wrestle with the Bible. Let the Lord shape your view of how to do this. Because the one thing I do know is that this country's conversation about life and the value of life seems to me to be irreparably broken. We don't just want to take the world's categories and superimpose it over Jesus. We'll let Jesus and his words speak through to us. Amen.
Let's look at this last section real quick. Mike Coburn said, keep moving. Verses 15 and 16, he even applies this to what I can only call scavenging. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So this final situation doesn't mention blood specifically, but no doubt an animal torn by beasts would have, have shed blood. And a body or carcass would have been... Uh, out there with blood sort of gelling or coagulating, right? But verses 15 and 16, imagine that an Israelite is going to eat this carcass. Maybe he's a farmer and some wild beast has killed one of his sheep. Uh, keep in mind, they've just come out of slavery in Israel. Like nobody's flossing, nobody's rich. Nobody's like, okay, let's just, you know, the animal's dead, let's just throw it in the ditch and keep it moving. No, everything is valuable, right? And so they're coming across this carcass, many of them poor, and they're going to see if they can't salvage it. If it's a clean animal that could be eaten, uh, and this text envisions them eating that animal. But it, it, in consequence, they're going to come into some kind of uncleanness, whether it's because of a dead body or because of the blood. They are to wash their clothes, and they are to bathe their bodies. They would be ceremonially unclean until the evening, but if they wash their clothes and bathe their body, then they would be clean after that time period. If they don't, they're going to bear their iniquity, verse 16 says. It means they're going to still be in their sin without a cleansing from God. Now, again, blood isn't mentioned here specifically, but I do think that language of washing and bathing and eating now this flesh is language that that is picked up by the New Testament writers to help us understand Jesus and the gospel. So, for example, in John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verses 53 to 57, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He said something that's pretty hard for them to take. Uh, his opponents have, have sort of run away from that. It's like, oh, man, you, you lost your mind. And, and Jesus explains further. Jesus said to them in verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And you see why people were scratching their heads like, yo, this is Jesus dude tripping. Is he talking about cannibalism? Is he talking about eating him, feeding him, drinking his blood? Well, not literally, of course but figuratively, symbolically, by faith. When we, for example, come to the Lord's table, we by faith feed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we by faith drink his blood that was shed for us. 
Christ comes in so powerful a way that he not only fulfills Leviticus chapter 17, but he takes what in Leviticus chapter 17 um, that is sort of limited and has this sort of off-limits sign around it, the blood, he takes it, not only makes it off-limits, but he makes it our food in his body. We feed by faith on his flesh. We feed by faith on his blood. And notice what happens in John chapter 6, verse 54. If we feed and drink his blood, we have life, eternal life. His blood gives life. The blood of bulls and animals was sacrificed symbolically that we might have a, a kind of life, that we might be forgiven. But Jesus' blood offered for us, not just symbolically, but really spiritually, brings us a life that does not end, eternal life. He has come for that reason. All that sprinkling of blood on the altar, all of that covering of blood in the field, all that pouring out of blood and sacrifice after sacrifice was all pointing to this final sacrifice where the Son of God would give his blood, his body, for our redemption, for our salvation. This is why we talk about being people who not just eat the body and drink the blood, but people who are washed by the blood. That language of washed in verse 15 and verse 16 gets picked up in the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The apostle Paul sees this vision. He sees one of the elders addressing him saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? He shows them this innumerable people in, in white robes, dazzling white robes. And he says, who are they and where do they come from? And John says, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So not with water are we washed, but with the blood of the Son of God. And our clothes are cleansed, not with water, but with blood. And not just our clothes, and not just our bodies, but our souls have been washed by this blood. And so the hymn writer asked the right question, have you been washed? Have you been cleansed? Have you come to this fountain that draws from Emmanuel's veins? 
this fountain where sinners plunge beneath that, beneath that flow, beneath that flow of blood, lose all their guilt and stain. This is what God offers us this morning. This is what's pictured for us in Leviticus chapter 17 and what is fulfilled for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what every one of us needs. That final sacrifice. That blood which really does plead for us and cleanse us. And beloved, if you're a Christian here this morning, that blood always flows for you. It always cleanses you. As we sang, it never loses its power. Tired of that. Preach that to yourself. Hold on to that. Remind yourself every day the blood never loses its power. It reaches where? To the highest mountain. And it flows where? To the lowest valley. Wherever you are, this blood is effective. It works for you. Don't trample it. Don't profane it. Accept it, be washed in it, and worship the God who gave it for your atonement. And my friend, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian this morning, today is the day of salvation. Right now, in fact, is the moment of salvation. Right now is the time to admit to God what you know about yourself and what God knows about you even better. That you, like the rest of us, are a sinner. You are. We don't like to be told so, but it's the truth. You're a sinner, just as we are sinners. And, and, and because of that, you need a sacrifice for your sins, just as we need a sacrifice for our sins. And I hope you know that you, you, there's no sacrifice that works except the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When he died for you on Calvary's cross and shed his blood for you so that you might be made at one again with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So that you would repent from sin and turn to the Son of God as your Savior and follow him right into eternal life. That's what God offers you this morning. A whole new life, a whole new heart through faith in Jesus Christ. So we would beg you this morning, come be washed. Come be cleansed. Put your faith in Jesus as your Savior who died on the cross for your sins personally and who was raised from the grave so that you personally would have eternal life and so that you personally would not be cut off from God, so that you wouldn't suffer God setting his face against you in righteous wrath and judgment because of your sins. That's what happens to all those who don't trust in Jesus. They face a God whose face is full of fury because our sins have angered him. But everyone, beloved, everyone who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved from God's judgment and shall live. This morning, beloved, we're going to have a, a, a moment of prayer and we're going to have a, a moment of silence. And from this point on, we're going to, I'm going to pray just now. We're going to sing a hymn. From this point on in the service, if you're not a Christian, your business this morning, is to do business with God, to talk with God about your sin and to ask God for forgiveness through Jesus Christ and to put your faith in him and turn to follow him as Lord. You might have to fight your own heart and mind to do that. Do it.
do it because your sin is no friend to your soul. Only Jesus is. Trust him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for Leviticus 17. We thank you for the blood that was shed for us. We thank you, O Lord, it's not the blood of bulls and goats that cannot cleanse the conscience, but it's the blood of your one and only son. The sacrifice that was given. Life was in his blood and he was your atonement for our sins. And now through him, everyone who believes has his life, eternal life and life to the full. So we pray this morning that you would give someone that gift this morning of eternal life. Give them the grace to confess their sins to you, to admit their sins to you, and give them the grace to, to quit their sins and to turn to Jesus in trust. And those of us this morning who are pilgrims and sojourners pressing our way to the heavenly city, give us grace this morning too, to continue in the faith, to continue trusting your sacrifice for us to continue looking to your coming and looking for the hope of glory. Oh, Lord, give us faith to continue in this life for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. picture in Revelation of the, the robes that have been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. So yeah, that, we, we're able to do that because of Jesus' sacrifice. We're going to sing Jesus paid it all. So join us. Let's start by singing the chorus together. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, sin had left, he washed it white as snow, I hear Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid, Jesus paid it all, to him my Jesus paid it all. 
Before the throne, before the throne, I stand in Him complete. I stand in Him complete. Jesus died my soul Jesus to save. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. And when I stand before the throne, when before the throne. I stand in him complete. I stand in him complete. I, my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. To him I owe. To him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Jesus paid it all for me. Jesus paid it all to him my own. To him my own. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white. He washed it white. He washed it white. He washed it white. I am cleansed, I am washed, I am sanctified, I am Holy Ghost filled, and water baptized, I am Jesus, my Savior's alive. Can we sing? I am cleansed. I am cleansed. I am washed. I am washed. Sanctified. I am sanctified. Holy Ghost filled. I am Holy Ghost filled. Water baptized.
Jesus, our Savior, is alive. He's done all that for us. He's washed us. He's cleansed us. He's fire baptized us to keep us until that final day. Let me invite you to be seated this morning. Before we do the benediction, I have a couple of um, things I want to do this morning by way of, of members and membership. Um, this morning is the last Sunday morning that we will have with our sister Brittany Nee Yarborough, now Edlow. And so I wanted her to come. She served us even on our last Sunday morning. Come and um, give God praise for our sister Brittany. Here we go. Brittany, tell us why you're running away from the family and all that stuff. Where you going? Good morning, church. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Brittany Edlow. I have been um, in fellowship here for five years. Um, through prayerful thoughtfulness with my husband, we've decided to go to um, Cornerstone Church in Bowie, Maryland. Um, so we're really thankful for that. But of course, you know, I'm going to miss y'all. I'm always ARC repping. And uh, I just ask for you to pray for us as a married couple and a family. Also pray for us the way people serve at this new church and fellowship with them. And I just thank you all for all the friendships and fellowship that I've had since the time I've grown here at ARC. And I'm going to be doing my ministry and I go forward to the Amen. 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 We will we will definitely pray for you. You're welcome to stay up here if you like. I got a couple more things for you. Um yeah, you've been married how long now? Seven months. Seven months. You're you're a veteran now. You gotta get it on lock, huh? Amen. Amen. In the trenches, amen. So praise God for seven months and we pray for 70 more years or however long the Lord gives. Uh, and we're just so thankful for your faithfulness here, the deposit of grace that you have left here, your enthusiasm uh, and joy and, and your real zealous love for God's word. You have instructed us and modeled for us genuine faith. And we just praise God for you and praise God for what he's doing uh, with you guys as a new family. We'll be, we'll be sitting you around. Don't be a stranger. If your husband go out of town one weekend, come back and worship with him and uh, we'll have a good time. Now, I also want to invite up, uh, where, where are they? I can't got my glasses on. It's dark in here. Where are the Chinkos? Are they here? Thierry and Gloria? Come on up. Y'all welcome Thierry and Gloria. Amen. Amen. You guys will know that Thierry came to the area, um, what was that, brother, 2018? 2017. Do graduate school at Georgetown, and uh, he was like a lot of graduate students. He was hungry and uh, living, living with a bunch of other guys, so we used to get lunch together and 
uh, whatnot. And in a couple years' time, he met the lovely Gloria, and uh, the Lord put it on their hearts to become husband and wife. Um, and so I just wanted to spend a little time with them, updating them. They're, they're still technically members of the church. Um, yeah, we're waiting on a resignation. We're waiting on a resignation. But until then, uh, there's some exciting things I wanted them to sort of um, share with us. I, I just did a little bit of introduction, but if you want to say more in the way of introduction for folks who may not know you. My name is Thierry Chenko, and this is my wife, Gloria. Yeah. We've been married since January of 2021. Um, yeah, I've been a member at the church for, what, four years? Yeah. Uh, before moving to Houston, and that's where we're at, Houston, Texas. Hey, now, so update us on the move to Houston. Uh, move to Houston has been good. Terry's from Houston. I'm from Miami originally, but Houston has become home to me. Um, there's always a soft spot for D.C., but Houston is home now, Amen. and it's going, it's going well. Praise God. So settling down there in Houston. Um, share something with us about where you're worshiping and, and how that's going. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to Crossover Bible Fellowship Church, the um, Baptist Church. Uh, we've been going for maybe about a year now. I think we started in March of last year, um, and it's going well. We've been investing in relationships, um, community building, um, little by little, and getting to know people, so building community and just a solid foundation. Amen. Praise God. Now, now something exciting is happening, brother, uh, in your life and your life, Gloria. Y'all are, are partners in this, but tell the folks a little bit about the calling you have felt you've had on your life uh, over at, at least as long as I've known you, so certainly longer. And what's happening with that calling? This felt, and this is from a very young age, um, that God has given me a calling for public service and to be able to serve people in my community. And so for the next 12 months at least, um, I'll be running to be the next United States Senator from Texas. So, so tell us, tell us more, brother. Yeah, yeah praise you, God. You mentioned something in the sermon about our conversations about life being broken, but I think it's undeniably clear to most of us in the room that it's not just our conversations about life, but it's really our politics in this country being broken, and families across this country, especially in the state of Texas, are suffering. And it's not just from a policy standpoint, but it's also from how we engage with each other in communities. And so I think there's a special opportunity in our political landscape today to be able to chart a new way forward and for me to be a voice and advocate for those that don't currently feel like they have one in Washington. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. So, brother, we, I, you know, you moved back to Houston with a vision for, at some point, running for office. Uh, maybe even your wisdom had you starting at a, a more local office. But God has been so gracious to you in your year there and your work there and the ways in which he's put people around you that he seems to be doing exceedingly more abundantly than, than we were asking or imagining uh, two years ago when you made the move. And so we praise God, brother, uh, for what he's doing. We praise God for the man of God that you are and the woman of God that you are. We need more Christians in public service and uh, we need more Christians who will be willing to take the light of Christ into that into that arena without compromising. And so I wanted us to, to know um, about this and to pray about this. If folks want to keep up with you, how do they keep up with you? Yes, yeah, so on all my social media platforms, it'll be Thierry Chenko, and then 
I'll be around to share phone number, email. But I really want to thank y'all. Um, I'm not the man that I am today without ARC. And we're not the couple that we are without ARC. So thank y'all for everything, the encouragement, the prayers. We'll need it across these next 12 months. But I know that this is family, and that means a ton to us. So thank you. We praise God for you, brother. We praise God for you. Love you, man. Love you. And how many know we need some more representation, some different representation from Texas? Leave that right there. Leave that right there. Last thing, membership-wise, and then I'm going to pray and give the benediction. We'll be out. We had the privilege. You see these folks that the Lord is, flowers the Lord is plucked out of our garden is planting in other parts of his vineyard. But we had the privilege this past Thursday of welcoming a number of new members uh, into the church. And the new member that um, was brought into the church last Thursday member meeting, I want to invite you to, to do two things. One, just stand. I see you, Kyle. I see you, Dylan. Um, any other new members here? Reggie. Reggie there. Praise God. Praise God. Joe and Danielle. Amen. So, so we like to give new members the right hand of fellowship, which means basically we're going to shake your hand and, and welcome to the family. So I want to invite you to go out to the door where I typically stand, and, um, and I'm going to come out there in a second after the benediction and, and sort of line up there with you. And uh, as we uh, dismiss after the benediction, we're just going to come greet you and, and welcome you to the family. We give God praise uh, for you, Reggie and Kyle and Dylan and Joe and Danielle. I think we're missing a couple of others this morning. Oh, Philip and, and Lillian, thank you, brother. I was wondering why you stood up because I thought you was already a member. Uh, you've, been, you've been family from right from day one. Philip and his wife, Lillian, uh, we're going to invite folks out uh, to the door um, so that we can give you the right hand of fellowship. Amen? So family, we, we, we families change, don't they? Uh, the Lord moves people on to do great things, whether it's marriage or whether it's run for office or both. Uh, and the Lord brings people to us. And uh, we look forward to seeing how we grow together as a family.